Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Kim Golding for part one of their discussion on entering the world of dyadic developmental psychotherapy. Part two will be released on August 30th. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Shadok. And the interview I have for you today is going to be a real treat. I am going to be speaking with Dr. Kim Golding. Kim is a psychologist who is based in the UK, and she's been very instrumental in bringing dyadic developmental psychotherapy to the United Kingdom. And she also has written a lot of books, either contributed or solely authored. I believe it's at least 14 books. My gosh, that's incredible. So she has been a clinical psychologist for over 30 years, and she has a specialized in a range of things, including working with children with Down syndrome, sleep difficulties, and children who are living within or adopted in the looked after system in the United Kingdom. And one of the things that she says is that she has always had an interest in working with parents to develop their parenting skills tailored to the specific needs of the children that they are caring for. And I think that's something a lot of us are trying to help parents with. And so without further ado, um, I'm gonna pause here for just a minute and Kim will be joining us very soon. So hello, Kim, and welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Yes. So I think that many listeners around the world, I know you're based in the UK and um, just a little side note, I always have to look up how to pronounce cities. (laughs) So uh, you can tell me if I got it right. Worcester. Yes. Okay. And I'm actually in a little town called Malvern. Okay. It's outside Worcester. Okay. All right. So some of these cities just are not pronounced the way they look. You can usually get Worcester from Worcestershire sauce. Right. Unless you pronounce that wrong. So, <laughs> True, <yeah. laughs> which I think many Americans do. <laughs> well, Kim, I want to thank you for joining us. And as I was sharing, I think a lot of listeners around the world are aware of your work in contributing to spreading the dyadic developmental psychotherapy model. And, but I also know that you certainly had experience before you discovered that model. Mm -hmm. And as a clinical psychologist, we're doing some other kinds of work. I was wondering if you could just share with listeners a little bit about your work. And um, I shared some about you before you joined the podcast, but I like to hear someone's personal story about how they found this kind of work. 
Sure. Yeah. So, oh, we have to go back to the end of the last century, I guess, to where where it started, which does rather reveal my age. So, back in about 1999, after a bit of a career break, I started an, a new post uh, in Worcester. Yes. <laughs> and it was to set up or to help with colleagues to set up a service to support carers of looked after and adopted children or children who were looked after or adopted from care. So, um, and. Yeah, that, that's where it all began. So, yes, at that time, I was very much bedded in a, a behavioural psychology model, and that's what I knew, and yeah, cognitive behavioural work, and um, went into this field um, and found myself pretty much out of my depths, you know, because mm. the, the traditional ways I had of working in previous posts just were not suiting this, this group of children and young people. It just didn't touch the sides. So I was really kind of, you know, that serene swan who who looks very serene, but paddles paddling frantically underneath. I guess that's how you can describe us at the time, as we were kind of trying to support these foster carers who were much more experienced with these children than we were, trying to figure out how we could be helpful to them. And that's what took me into DDP. I met Dan, Dan Hughes, the founder of DDP, um, and started a huge journey uh, of discovery, of development, of developing myself as a psychologist and as an author, and obviously um, providing lots of ways of working in interventions, not just in therapy for the children, but also in parenting support and school support. Yes. Those yes. who are supporting the children. Yeah. Yes. So, Kim, I know you also, independently of your study of dyadic developmental psychotherapy, had a love of storytelling, and I'm interested how that developed for you and the relevance you see to of it to your current work and populations you ended up working with. Well, we have to go back much, much further to, <laughs> to that journey. So, actually sitting on my grandmother's lap when I was... Uh, well, under three, because she died when I was pretty young, and she would she had a, a painting on the wall, a kind of artwork, and she used to get it down, and, and it was just a little path leading down to a cottage, and she used to tell me stories about this this cottage, um, and kept me captivated. My father was a great storyteller as well. I think they they they're both um, originally uh, my ancestors are from Russian Jew, and my father's side Russian Jewish, you, you know, Eastern European. And I think um, that cultural storytelling came over with them when they came over to England. Mm. So, you know, that's the beginnings of it, really. So I've always enjoyed stories, reading, writing, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I you know, was working with the looked after and adopted children and their families, I would just find myself having often an image in my mind. Um, and that image would lead to a story, which I would yes. then write. And then I would share with the child, the family, sometimes doing stories with some of the children, but often just writing for them. And yeah, there's sometimes those stories went down well, sometimes you didn't have a clue whether that yes. was responding to it. Uh, and but, but that, yeah, that's what happened. I just started writing these stories, which we put I put together in the book. Um, yes. Bridges with traumatized children uh, a few years later and added mm -hmm. a few more. And, and I'm still doing it, even in some of the adult therapy work now. Uh, you know, if, if, it, if it, I get it's usually again starting with an image, an image or some visual image that we're sharing between us will spark a story off, and then I'll write that story. So I've 
if people are interested, I've written a little book called A Tiny Spark of Hope, which just came out a year or so ago. Yes, uh, that. A, yeah, a therapy journey with an adult client of mine who I knew when she was in foster care. She was in our service as one of the foster children we supported. Oh and she, as an adult, she came back and we did three years of work together as she wanted to to discover her authenticity. And uh, it was such a powerful piece of work. We wrote the book together. And as people will see if they read that book, there's some of the stories I wrote for her during our piece of work are in there. Because yes. again, for the same reason, you know, things would just spark stories in my mind. And I had to, we had a break in our work together for about a six week period when I was going over to Australia to do some training. And I was talking to her about how do you want to, you know, know that you're still in my mind during that break and she said write me a story so yeah yeah and that story's in there so yeah and we should also add prior to that book you do have a whole book about therapeutic stories Mm. working with children yes 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 some of those for children some of those for the parents of children so yes it was written for adults as well as the children yeah yes stories stories aren't they they're powerful whatever age yeah Yes, so, so powerful. And so we've mentioned a couple already, but Kim, I was counting up different books shared on your website and such. And is it correct (laughs) that you've either solely authored or contributed to 14 books? That's what I saw. I saw 14 books. Maybe there's more. That sounds about right. Uh, Yeah, I've lost track myself. So, yes, I don't quite know how it's happened. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember, you know, sitting here across the pond thinking this, this therapist in in the uk like she's just so prolific she just keeps cranking out book after book and resource after resource and i also remember thinking at the same time it was almost as though ddp got more organized in the united kingdom than it did in the united states where it started and i always had this idea that maybe you were behind some of that i don't because of your involvement of your ability to to uh, write so many books and get so much information out there um and i know you are um the leader of the board of the DDP Institute, but no, I don't know. No, was my oh, hang on, I just have to correct you there. No, I'm not leader of the board. I've never okay. led the board. No, no. I, okay. was, I was for many years, I was one of the founding members of the DDPI board. The okay. Board, and, and then just last year I came off that. Oh, okay. Okay. Year. So I was reading something a little out of date. I apologize. Yeah. And then I'm also on the the English one, which is DDP Connects UK. But again, I'm not leading it. I'm I'm just one of the one of the directors so but yeah you're right I have you know I've I've been very involved in the development of DDP over here right from the early days uh, when we started to get ourselves a bit organized it just started to become very popular over here and I think the smallness of our country Led yes. that, you know, you talk about perhaps a more coherent development in the United Kingdom than in the USA. And I think that's down to the size of our country. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we could. Yeah, it just it just makes it easier to develop a model which moves through the country. 
Um, and I think in your huge country with all your different states, uh, I think it's slightly different. So it perhaps does look more coordinated or organised in the UK, but I think that's why. Yes. Equal, yes. equal enthusiasm on both sides of the pole. Oh, for sure. Yes. Yes. And extending out Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, China, m- many countries in Europe, you know, so it's a... Yeah, it's, it's got quite a broad spread these days. Yes. So many of our listeners will be familiar with dyadic developmental psychotherapy, but there's certainly going to be some who are not. And I wonder if you might just give a brief overview about the model. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, it may not be brief, but I'll try. Um, yeah, so- it doesn't have to be brief. <laughs> I changed my mind. <laughs> Dynamic developmental psychotherapy was originally developed as a therapy model for the children by Dan, Dan Hughes, you know, very gifted clinical psychologist. Um over in well, Maine and Pennsylvania and back in Maine now. And um, you know, he was working with children. Again, a bit similar to, you know, the journey I was on, he was working with children adopted or foster care or foster adopted and finding that his ways of working were just not touching the side for these children. So Dan being Dan went back to basics and developed a whole therapy model based on attachment theory, uh, encompassing theories of relationship like intersubjectivity. More laterally, the neuroscience has come into that as well. This is an evolving, developing model. And as we, you know, as he started to train us in this, and especially as we kind of rolled it out in the UK, what became more and more obvious, which is where kind of my role came in, was how important the work with the parents was to support the therapy. Yes. Um, or even you know, some, for, for families where therapy never happens, you know, the actual, actually actually working with the parents and helping them to parent the children in a DDP-informed way, which is what that means is it's helping the children to recover trust in being parented again because mm-hmm. their earliest ex- experiences has blocked their trust. Um, they fear relationships. They particularly fear parenting relationships. Mm-hmm. And so the, the model is really aimed at helping these children to feel safe, to trust and be parented and only then can the sort of the healing processes of therapy and the, you know, the exploration of past experience and the processing of spirits, only can that, only that work can happen when, when children have some security, safety, stability within a family. So, you know, I became really involved in the parenting support part of DDP, which is where a lot of the writing came from. Our service was set up to, um, pr- principally not as a therapy service but as a support service for the families and for the parents so so you know that's you know a lot of those books that you've t- referred to came out of that work and just wanting to make that more widely available so DDP from becoming a, psych- a model of psychotherapy also became a model of parenting and then indeed a model of practice Yes, if we can help schools to be DDP informed, in other words, to understand the trauma of the children and their lack of safety in school 
and how they need to settle, regulate before they can come anywhere near to learning. If we can help schools understand that so they can put those sort of safety building, relationship building things in place, children are going to achieve more in schools. So the, those DDP ideas started to go out into, into other settings as well. So we now call it still DDP, but we call it Didactic Developmental Psychotherapy Parenting and Practice. Okay. Yes, because of the extension of that in various ways to various environments. Something I have a particular interest in work with parents and caregivers also. And I shared this sentence before you came on, but I want to share it again because I felt like it was so profound. And it's something that you share on your website that you had a passion to develop parenting skills tailored to the needs of the particular needs of a child the parent was caring for. And I think that that is such an elegant way of saying that, like that tailored to their needs. I think when we become parents and our general idea of parenting, we just think there's general good parenting practice, like tailored is not something that goes through the mind generally. And that can be a big barrier sometimes. Um, but I loved how you said that and um, talk to us a little bit about your passion for working with parents. Again, it goes back before the DDP days, before the looked after and adopted children days, I began my career uh, working with families where children were born with learning disabilities um, in, and some physical disabilities. So particularly working with children with Down syndrome was a big yes. one of my early jobs and going in and working with parents to help children very, you know, very young, very infants onwards to get, you know, to develop to the best that they could. So, you know, I, I started back there before moving into more mental health field and then working with, with parents of children, what we've now described them as on the edge of care. So working with birth families. So I kind of move from working with parents of learning disabled children to working with parents who were struggling to parent their children safely and fight. So, and obviously that's a whole different way, different support that those parents need compared to, you know, the parents of children with Down syndrome and other learning disabilities and physical disabilities. And then moving to, to, to working with children adopted or looked after, adopted from care or looked after in care, you know that that presented a whole other series of challenges again yes you know so my you know thoughts about parenting support obviously have changed with each group which is I guess where that phrase and sentence came from because each time I've had to you know go back to basics and think what is actually going to help these this particular population of children and families and um yeah, so obviously in the last uh, 15 years or so, my focus has been on helping children who've experienced developmental traumas. You know, as I said earlier, those children who have grown up to fear being parented uh, and to really struggle to have to engage in secure attachment relationships, um, struggle to use those relationships as a secure base to go out and explore the world and um, needing a particular 
a particular support. I mean, actually, I think the parenting model within DDP is a great one for all of all parents yes. and all children. You know, it was you know developed particularly for children with these particular traumatic experiences early in life. Kim, I think that this aspect of your career and working with you know Down syndrome and some developmental disabilities gave you some sort of laser focus on how to work with a caregiver because you know those are examples where no one is gonna really argue that you this child needs a certain type of care some and 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 sometimes um parents have said to me the the child i'm parenting it's not an obvious issue that they have and so if a child has down syndrome or if a child is in in a wheelchair there's a lot of support and understanding of parents because you can visibly see Uh and parents have shared with me not that i not that i you know uh feel like um that it's um you know any harder or easier but sometimes it feels like if what my child struggled with was more visible, Mm. it would be easier for all of us to understand why they need a different approach. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, because you you made the leap from working with things that are more visible to this. Yeah, sure. And actually, just to share personally, both of my children have neurodiverse difficulties. You know, they're both now adults and, you know, my own parenting journey um, has been one, of, you know, of trying to find out how to parent them successfully and how to, you know, and I've made many mistakes along the way. And, you know, my daughter was late diagnosed as on the autism spectrum. So and as a child, having a parent with a psycholo- as a psychologist didn't particularly help me notice her autism early on, um, you know, and, you know, and parenting her and her regulation difficulties, you know, was a real struggle. You know, my son has, has some visual difficulties, dyspraxia and, you know, some coordination problems so I guess even you know as a parent myself I've always been struggling to adapt to the needs of the children so I guess it wasn't a big shift in my professional life to also be thinking on well what do these children need Um, you're right Um, I think when we move although many of the children who are um, developmentally traumatized also have lots of neurodiverse difficulties, lots of executive functioning difficulties, but you're right, those are more hidden. They're not, you know, they're not in a wheelchair, they've not got it written on their face, you know, and people do forget that these children are struggling at these very fundamental levels with, you know, basic executive functioning, you know, regulating themselves, problem solving, um, being able to manage their impulses for all sorts of reasons, both, you know, biological, genetic, exposure to drugs, alcohol in utero, the impact of the environment, the impact of the developmental trauma, you know, so, but these are hidden from view a lot. People see a, you know, a 10 year old kid not understanding that emotion, their emotional maturity is more like five or six and the expectations they hold of that child then become far too high for them. So how do we, you know, how do we notice the individual needs of the child in front of us without holding these assumptions that they fit their chronological age, for example? Yes. And I know that 
you have a knack for putting concepts of DDP into very, maybe I should say, concrete ideas to make it easier to grasp. In fact, in your Nurturing Attachments book that um, I was talking about with you before we started, the the house okay so any listeners um we'll have um kim explain it but she has a model of a house in one of her books to show uh the house model of parenting how you start with secure base and then building relationships and then managing behavior could you even though they don't have the graphic which is of course very helpful could you share a little bit about that how what led to you creating something mm-hmm. like that okay oh, it's another story stories. <laughs> <laughs> so you know i shared that when we when we started when we started working with principally foster carers to begin with trying to find ways that we could be helpful to them as you know our psychologists we have social workers in the team as well you know we were meeting with these with these foster carers trying to find ways to be helpful to them in their parenting and I was trying, you know, I wanted to figure it out with them. So yes. we, we set up a group, which was the precursor to nurturing attachments. We initially called it fostering attachments because they were all foster carers. And, you know, these this, this lovely group of foster carers came along and I said, yeah, let's just figure this out as we go along. Let's find out, you know, what, what you need. We'll have conversations. We'll bring in concepts, attachment theory, think about trauma, think about ways of parenting. And really, I was writing the program, the nurturing what became the Nurturing Attachments Program, as I was doing this group work with the carers. So it was very informed by their... Well, sort of, you experience. know, organic in vivo experience yeah. of, of writing. I Absolutely. love that. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work. So I was speaking away in between groups to try and write the next bit. Um, but, you know, but what was really bringing these carers alive was when we talked about trauma and attachment and when they started to make sense of why their children were struggling to feel secure with them. You know, and that, so sorry, you asked me about the house model. So that evolved into the house model of parenting. We needed to start with a secure base. We needed to start with how do we help these children form relationships? What are the challenges to giving them those relationships? How, you know, what can we start to do to put in place that these children can start to feel safe being parented? So that became the first layer of the house. And then yes. the building relationships obviously sat on top of that and span off into, you know, DDP-informed ways of parenting these children. Because this was yeah. all dovetailing with my learning about DDP as well at the same time. So it was very informed by Dan's ideas. You know, and so that became the second tier of the house. And then the roof became, and what do we do about the behaviour? You know, so that so we started to look, and I tend to talk more about behaviour support now than behaviour management. Um, although in some, like you said, the early, early um, depictions of that model, it's definitely down as, as parenting management. Uh, sorry, behaviour management, but I tend to talk about behaviour support now. So how do we support these children's behaviour whilst helping them to stay emotionally connected and feeling safe and secure with their parents? And that became the, the roof of the house is how we do that. What Dan beautifully calls connection with correction. So, you know, How do we have two hands of parenting is the other analogy we use. You know, How do we give children, you know, how does parental authority 
be provided for children, including discipline, consequences, boundaries, and those sorts of things in a way that still helps the children to feel safe being parented. And these children fundamentally don't. They find parental authority very hard. Parental authority um, triggers for many of these children fears of abandonment. Yes. I'm no good. You're going to get rid of me. And how do we help these children accept that sort of benign parental authority in a way which helps them stay emotionally connected and feeling safe with their caregivers? And that's the roof of the house is how we do that, how we bring those two things together. And I think one of the really important take-home messages of that is the behavior piece is the roof. It's not the foundation because many times there's a tendency to start backwards, so to speak, um, and focus on behavior prior to that. And I think such a graphic like that is so practical and helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. One time years ago, um, Lori Thomas and I, who she um, is an adoptive parent, but is also now a therapist, um, we wanted to present on on parenting kids with um, a trauma history. And she's like, we have to talk about the house. We have to talk about the house from Kim Golding's book. And (laughs) she's like, that has helped me so much. And she's like, you know, Lori is just this woman with so many ideas and so much energy. And she's like, okay, but here's the thing. We have to have like a physical structure of some kind of house like that we're putting in. So, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, do we bring poster board? Do we bring blocks? You know, we're, we're trying to, you know, figure out how, how we represent this graphic in a 3D uh, mm-hmm. representation. She said that that was one of the most helpful things she ever came across in understanding parenting kids um, with trauma, histories, and attachment disruption. So I want you to know how helpful that's been. Yeah, that's fab. And yeah, I think it was informed as much. Yeah, I, I brought it together, but it was informed by the foster carers who were doing day, the day-in-day job you know, for, of parenting these children. So we, you know, we learned so much from them, as well as having our psychological expertise to bring to it and our psychological theory. You know, we were learning from the lived experience of the, of the foster carers and then the adopters as well, who, who later joined our groups, you know, and then now residential carers have been done that group as well. So it's very important. It's a two-way process. It's not. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, Kim, thank you so much for this discussion so far, and I'm eager to continue it with you. So listeners, please join us again next week as we continue to talk with Dr. Kim Golding about DDP, dyadic developmental psychotherapy, and um, other um, approaches that she's effectively used. So uh, thank you for the discussion thus far, Kim. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 